Good morning. Um, I'll just share a little story as we begin. Um, when I was a child, um, we had five children in our house, and uh, one day my father brought home a, a big uh, bag of second-hand clothes. Um, we weren't a rich family, so that was like Christmas for me. And so we opened it out and brought all sorts of things out. There were, have you ever heard of jodhpurs? Jodhpurs? That's a, a funny baggy pants, the, the khaki colour, I think. And um, There were all sorts of strange clothes in there. But as all of it came out, nothing fitted me. Nothing at all. And uh, it just, uh, at the end of it, I just burst into tears. I was a little boy. Everyone else got clothes and I got nothing. I got nothing. And uh, I just, just burst into tears. And then someone found a little pair of black gloves for Johnny. <laughs> and that was, I was happy just to have that little pair of black gloves. I trust this word this morning that none of us will go out weeping because there was nothing there for me. Nor that you just go out with a little pair of black gloves. In Christ, God has given us all we need to be fully, richly clothed before his presence. And I trust we'll see that in this passage. What are we seeking in this life? Are we seeking anything more than the average Aussie? Are we? Is the world too much with us? Do we comfort ourselves that at least we're reasonably nice people, but don't most Aussies see themselves that way? Have we forgotten where our true identity and destination is? Have we lost sight of the glory of the one true man who alone can show us what we are destined to be? Have we forgotten that we've been raised with Christ and our lives are now to take direction not from the world but from on high where he is seated at the right hand of God? Lift up your hearts, lift up your eyes and see him high and lifted up for his church. Everything we need comes down to us from above. This world has no hope. It has nowhere to go. We need to show them where the true riches lie. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why are we to seek the things that are above? Well, the reason we are to seek things above 
the reason we can seek things above is that we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. We're not desperately trying to improve ourselves by reaching up to a God we can never please. No, we've been filled with him, just as all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily, and we have been made complete in him. God united us to his son. He put us to death. We were buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And when he, he, when he ascended, he took us with him so that we might share in all the rich love and glory the Father has poured out on his Son. This is what we are. This is our present identity and position before the Father. And it's all ours simply by faith. And without faith, we couldn't see that this is so. But with faith, we can actually participate in all that God has given to his Son. No wonder we should look up and seek and let our minds dwells, dwell on things above. Now Thomas, uh, sorry, John Owen, the Puritan theologian, he describes what this seeking looks like. It's a passionate love for God informed by the mind and embraced by the will. Uh, putting it in other words, setting our mind on things above, it's not just a intellectual, theological exercise. It is setting the heart on fire with an enlarged affection for the things of heaven. So we'll never deal with, we'll never get on top of wrong desires by simply trying to shut them down. We need larger desires, God-inflamed desires that show how pathetic and pale the desires of the flesh are by comparison. We know the things that are above are the things that are eternal. Everything else is passing away. Uh, John Owen went on, he said, here one is not trying to escape the painful realities of this life, but rather endeavouring to reframe one's perspective of life around a much larger canvas that in encompasses all of reality. People think they have a handle on reality. If you don't know God and Christ, you don't know a thing. You might have a lot of information, but you don't know a thing about things as they really are. The world only has this present existence as its reality. It cannot see the truth that God has overcome this world in his son. All that we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment. All the evil and horror of that has been overcome by Christ. This world in its present form is passing away. Sometimes we think it's very secure and stable. But then the next crisis comes, doesn't it? And we realise how flimsy our security is here. 
The resurrection of Christ opens our eyes to a whole new creation where sin and death and judgment no longer press in against us. And the things above are not merely pie in the sky when you die. They are present, powerful realities that we live in by faith and they bolster our lives in the midst of all the turmoil and trouble of this life. And Owen shows how practical this is. He writes, To respond to the distorting nature of sin, you must set your affections on the beauty and glory of God, the loveliness of Christ and the wonder of the gospel. Were our affections filled, taken up, possessed with these things, what access could sin with its painted pleasures, with its sugared poisons, with envenomed baits, have unto our souls. You see, resisting sin comes not by deadening your affections, but by awakening them to God himself. Do not seek to empty your cup as a way to avoid sin, but rather seek to fill it up with a spirit of life so that there's no longer room for sin. You see, the Colossian believers were being tempted to look beyond Christ to find power to change their lives. They were trying to empty their lives of wrong desire by all kinds of religious programs, but all they were doing was tinkering around the edges, like moving deck chairs on the Titanic, as we say. All their rules and taboos were of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We still have, as believers, this problem with the flesh, with our, with our bodies. Uh, Paul in Romans says, Your body is still dead, Let me read it. Romans 8. Uh, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, do we realise that? That this body has not yet been fully redeemed. So we struggle with our desires as human creatures in a fallen world. But he goes on to say, because of, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, because we have the spirit We can actually live in these mortal, fallen, frail, dying bodies that are so susceptible to sin, we can live as God's holy, righteous people. Right to the day we go home, we'll be battling with this body of sin. It's not that the flesh inherently is evil. Everything God creates is good. But sin has taken up residence here and we have to live in the battle of that. And every one of us knows it because we all have desires and those desires, they tempt us to keep on going when we should say, that's enough. It might be just eating food. And we have a struggle. But... God tells us that in Christ we have all that we need to deal with it. The Colossians thought they could find something stronger than the gospel, stronger than Christ. And that's what they were being deceived by. But it's a bit like trying to hold balloons down. You could hold one balloon down in a swimming pool, give you two, you might be able to, three, a bit harder, 
Half a dozen? A dozen? No way. You might be able to handle one wrong desire, two, but it'll pop up somewhere else. You know, you, you, in, when I was working at the mission, fellas would be so proud that they'd stayed off the alcohol for a week, but much of their behaviour was like a dry drunk. They were irritable. They were easily angered, uh, but they weren't drinking, you know? And we could be so proud that we've conquered this habit but discover that there's other things happening in us that we're blind to. Whatever the world comes up with to solve the human condition can never stop the cravings of human nature. We cannot save ourselves. Only Christ went to the depths that were needed to overcome our flesh. And it's not futile to set your minds on things above. It's not escapism. It is the most practical and effective way to fill and free your heart to leave no room for wrong desires. And no wonder the devil tries to stop us looking above and redirect us and distract us elsewhere. He wants to blind us to the power that we've been given to slay the dragons of sin that seek to hold us captive. So what are the things above? What he says Christ is. That's where Christ is. But that's also where we are because he is our true life. We died, we were raised in him, we're hidden with Christ. What we are is not yet revealed. It'll be revealed when he is revealed. Remember Jesus prayed that the Father, to the Father, the glory you've given me. He says to him, the glory you've given me, I have given to them. He has given us the glory that the Father gave him. We have that glory now. And one day it shall be fully revealed. The whole creation is on tiptoe, longing to see the glory of the children of God. And that's, that's our dynamic hope. Without that, we would be hopeless. We'd be without hope. We'd be, uh, we'd be discouraged, not just by the sin of the world, and that brings our hearts down, but then we'd be overwhelmed by our own sin. But this hope that we will appear with him in glory, this is God's promise to all who have been united to his Son. So if we've been raised with Christ, we can set our minds on things above. We've been, you know, the the mindset on the flesh is is death. But the mind set on the things of the spirit is life and peace. And we have been freed to set our minds on those things. And so by seeking things above, we actually have power to kill what is earthly in you. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you lived in them. Isn't it, does it surprise you when Paul writes to Christians about the need to put things like this off? I think we've 
We've domesticated the gospel. We think the gospel is just for good people. The early church was just sort of breaking free. It's still got the smell of the of the fire. You know, it's like a like you pull a a, a branch out of the fire, and, and it's still glowing and smelling with the smoke. I I, my, I lost my brand new mobile phone. Slipped out of my pocket, straight in the fire. My my son Matt put his hand in and grabbed it out of the coals. I couldn't believe it's ruined. No, actually it wasn't. It's still the same one. Works. Amazing. But you could see the effect that the, the, the hold was all melted. And you could smell it. And you know, maybe we've been in the church so long we forget what it's like to see believers who have just come out of the world. I'm seeing that in prison. And sometimes they say things... They say wonderful things in the scriptures in ways that you sort of think, oh, I wouldn't say it that way. It's just coming freshly out and they don't know what it is to look squeaky clean yet. But they would read that and they know, yes, this is what I need to put off and put to death. The reality is actually we need to put to death some of these things too, don't we? Because we're not always as squeaky clean as we look at church, are we? There's things that creep up in our souls that, that we wouldn't share as freely. We have power to kill sin, but we would have no power unless it had already been defeated in the cross. Remember Paul said, you have died. Our death has taken place once for all. Our old self was crucified with him, uh, that, that death can't be repeated. Paul's not asking us to do that again, again, again. Christ died to sin once for all. In the life he now lives, he lives to God. So consider yourself dead to sin in him and alive to God. Can you see that? The only power we have to slay any sin is on the basis that we were put to death once for all in him. The judgment was born, the verdict was taken, the penalty was enacted. He died to sin. He died our death, our judgment. And we have been justified from sin. Not just freed from the power, but justified um, in the sense that God could no more leave us in the grave than he could leave his own sinless son in the grip of death. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's where we are in Christ. So on that basis, we've been loosed from the guilt of our sins. We stand firmly in the grace of God. And that's the only place from which we can effectively <coughs> deal with with sin, put it to death. Verse 5, it literally says, put to death therefore your members which are on the earth. Now that NIV says, uh, put to death what is earthly in you. But it's, it's more specific, your members, the members of your body which are on the earth. Because our bodies on this side of glory, as I said, struggle with inordinate wrong desires at 
work in us. Um, how do you put to death then your members which are on the earth? To gratify any sensual appetite is to give it the very food and nourishment by which it lives, thrives and is active. And the more you give your body over to excessive sensual indulgence, God created desires gone utterly wrong. The more you do that, the appetite increases with the indulgence. So the way to kill it is to starve it. I... Years ago, I was at my first church. I was a youth pastor. One day, my, ra- my wife rang me. She said, I killed him. At that point, I was having a few struggles with one of the deacons. <laughs> and I thought, Margaret, what have you done? <laughs> and I said, what have you done? And she said, our budgie. I forgot to feed it instead. Now, I don't think she killed it. I think he may have died from something else. But she thought she'd killed it by, by not providing what it needed to live. But this is the truth. If we stop feeding our sins, they will die. Our trouble is we sometimes feel an affection for our sins. But if we look above we'll see something far more wonderful than sin can ever offer And then we see sin, we start hating sin as God hates sin. We start loving what is good and true and beautiful as God does. And we love God. And so we want to put sin to death. Well, that point, we discover we can actually do it. We can do it. We're not enslaved. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. We can kill off our inordinate desires. They no longer control us. We can use the gifts God gives us here without being enslaved by them. Now can we see that all the things that are earthly in us are utterly inconsistent with the new self that we put on when we came to faith in Christ. Verse 9, seeing, he says, what does he say? Uh, Put them all away, anger, wrath. Uh, My wife, I came home, she said she's had seven calls wanting surveys over the phone in in the previous couple of hours. The next call, how did I respond? Not as I should have. <laughs> All of us can so easily rationalise why we act in ways that do not reflect the nature of Christ. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Don't misspeak. They call it misspeaking. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, it's abundantly clear that to put on the new self, which when we came to faith, we did. 
That's past tense. And when we did that, we put on Christ. So at every juncture when temptation and sin tries to trap us, we are to put on the things that belong to Christ. Christ is our new self. That means being consciously, deliberately dependent on Christ. We have no power to effectively deal with sin apart from him. It's by the spirit of Christ that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. I was doing a Bible study at Mobilong through 1 John and there's a verse in chapter 4 of 1 John verse 9 and it's, you know, you read a verse and you expect it to go one direction, but it goes another. And this is one of those verses. It says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that he might die for us. No, he did, and that's true. But it actually says, so that we might live through him. God showed his love. He manifested among us, sending his son so that we actually might live through him. There's no other way to deal with sin apart from living through him. With him, without him, we can do nothing. Um, thinking about uh, how this would be helpful to illustrate and uh, I thought of the story of out of the Chronicle of Narnia's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. C.S. Lewis introduces a, to a, a, us a character, a very rude, irritable, utterly selfish little mean boy and the uh, characters introduced with this telling line there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it <laughs> and when Eustace is taken to the mystical land of Narnia accompanied by his cousins Lucy and Edmund he's forced to confront the powerlessness that he has to change what he has become uh, on Dragon Island he discovers this great treasure owned by a, a dragon that's now dead and he gloats over all of it because he thinks it's now his and he puts on the dragon's bracelet and he falls asleep but when he wakes he discovered that his greed has led him to become a dragon himself he's got a dragon skid and over time as he as the reality of what's happened hits him he longs to be free and he realises that he wanted to be able to relate to others, to be kind and love him, but he can't get there now. He's imprisoned in this terrible dragon skin. And eventually he realised the terrible lonely outcome of where his selfishness and greed had led him. He longed to be returned to being a boy again. And then Aslan turns up, who, the lion that personifies Christ, Aslan tells Eustace that if he wants to be changed to be a boy, he must undress. He's not wearing any clothes, he's just got the dragon skin. And so he begins scratching himself. And the scales begin to peel away all over the place. But as he goes deeper, there's more scales, more dragon skin. Layer after layer, no change. He still has the appearance of a dragon. And finally Aslan says, you'll have to let me undress you and he looks at Aslan's claws but he says yes okay and Eustace tells us how painful the process is he begins pulling the skin off it hurt worse than anything I've felt 
The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Slowly but surely, the dragon hide began falling away, layer after layer, painfully peeled away. And after removing the skin, Aslan tosses Eustace into the water and Eustace realises he's a boy again and he exits the pool and Aslan dresses him in new clothes. Hmm. Powerful story, isn't it? We can't change ourselves no matter how hard we try. Sin is not just sitting on the surface of our lives. It goes much deeper than we've ever realised. It clings to us as the dragon skin did to Eustace. Only Christ can remove that old self. And whilst it caused us pain to let him do so, it caused him far more. So Paul is saying that we're no longer that dragon that we once were. We have been made new. Every sin that we need to put to death is nothing compared to the deep operation that took place on us, in Christ, on that cross. So we're still weak in ourselves. And the only power we have to slay sin is because what God, what Christ did to us to restore us. So Christ, what Christ does to free us, to make us new, is a total work. I was sharing with an Aboriginal couple who have had a long journey in faith and they, they said tribalism is what is uh, causing so much pain uh, even within the Aboriginal community Paul said there's neither Greek nor Jew circumcised, uncertain, no slave free Christ is all and in all how much suffering, hatred and pain is caused by tribalism tribalism is is defined as the behaviour and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own tribe or social group that stirs up all kinds of sin and wrong desire Nationalism is a form of tribalism. And we're seeing the destruction that that brings. We think our way of life, our values, religious or political, are so much better than yours and we will kill and maim and destroy in order to protect and impose our way of life and, where necessary, suppress those considered inferior in order to maintain our power. So tribalism shatters the truth that all humanity is made in the image of God. But what sin defaces, grace restores. Racism of any form should have no place now. Someone said racism is the last sin to go because it's the most hidden in our hearts. I tell you, anything like this, if we let it sit there, it will rot any relationship we claim to have with God but that's what Christ took to the cross it has no place in us if our life is Christ and Christ is all and in all then whoever is in Christ is my brother my sister no matter how different they are from me and everyone else 
whoever they are, is potentially my brother or sister because they too could one day receive Christ. Can you see how putting on Christ, how wide it's to, it's to uh, go in the world amongst the nations? Let's say some final things. The need to kill sin will be with us till the end of our days because sin will be with us. Mortifying sin is not just something you do once. It's a relentless, ongoing action daily for all of us. We may not be always conscious of doing it, but Paul says, think about it. Do it. If we're not killing sin, Owen, the Puritan, says it will be killing us. And we're not just to put off all these bad things. We're to put on as God's chosen, holy and beloved people, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And how many times? Seven times? Seventy. Don't stop counting. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, you could put off a lot of things, but not put on these things. I think that would look very much like a Pharisee, wouldn't it? We might be tempted to complain that we can't do it. It's too hard. Or that we haven't got what it takes to overcome certain things. Paul here is saying that we've got all that we need. We've got Christ. So we can't complain that we can't do this. By sight, it looks too hard sometimes to overcome sin. But by faith, we take God at his word. And when we do that, we discover a power by the Spirit in Christ to overcome the biggest sin. God can free our hearts to love, to delight in his way, and to and to live in the goodness of this creation in ways that don't let the creation become our God so that our hearts are free in love with the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, um, none of us... um, could claim that that such a word that we've heard this morning from Colossians does not speak to where we are. And so we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would make the things above so real and so attractive to us 
all that Christ is in a world of darkness, that we will gladly slay the dragons of sin and that we'll do so knowing how wonderfully new you've made us such that you call us your beloved and holy people. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.